Welcome to the Staking Defense Podcast, a show where we talk to validators and key stakeholders in the crypto infrastructure world. My name is Kevin, and I'll be your host. Staking Defense aims to offer candid discussions about the state of decentralization and use the validator perspective to shed light on what is happening under the hood of some of your favorite protocols. We've got a mission, the same unifying vision that brought a lot of us into crypto. So while decentralization feels like a meme at this point, it's something we want to promote and protect with these conversations. Today, we're running back the tornado cash drama and using it as a vehicle to talk about privacy and the validator's role in it more broadly. I've got two amazingly qualified guests, Aaron of Vladiator Labs, who was one of the few folks brave enough to admit that he was a part of the key generation ceremony on Tornado Cash, and David Campbell, former CEO of Zcash and a veteran of security and privacy when it comes to software. Aaron and David, welcome to the Staking Defense podcast. Thank you. Morning. Yeah, good to be here. Morning. So I'm really excited for this convo, given the past couple of weeks. Um, also, really, the subject of privacy and censorship is one of the connective tissues of the Snaking Defense League. So I know it stays pretty top of mind for all of us. And since it's such a vast subject, I'm going to try and focus it through the lens of crypto past and present, as well as how it relates to us as validators. First, though, as you both are extremely credentialed in this area, I wanted to ask um, what you're working on currently, what you've maybe worked on in the past related to privacy, privacy protocols, and, and censorship. Um, David, maybe you can start since I, I, I know a little bit about your background first, and then Aaron, you can go after David. Sure. So I've been working on security really for longer than we've even called it that as an industry. Uh, and I ran uh, an assessment company that was focused on red team assessment for about a decade. The company was called Electric Alchemy. And something that became really clear to me in the course of these engagements was that we would always win. And it wasn't that I was just an amazing uh, hacker. It was that defense is incredibly hard. And as our lives became more and more digital, the impact of these security lapses, which were systemic, became quite profound. Uh, so it was during the time that I was doing this assessment work that I was recruited by Julia Angwin at the Wall Street Journal, uh, who was a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who was really interested in how big tech as Web2 was blossoming uh, was basically handling our data and whether or not they were being transparent with us about what they were doing with our data. So she ran a feature about 10 years ago called What They Know. And for that feature, I surveyed uh, the top 100 apps in the App Store and also the, the Play Store to get a sense of why were these apps free? And if we weren't the customers, were we the product and to what extent? And as it turns out, a lot of information was being collected and it was being shared with third parties without our knowledge. And I, I, it's with a tremendous amount of satisfaction that 10 years later, I now look back on that and see that the App Store uh, now does a pretty good job of making it clear what information are these app developers collecting? Who are they sharing it with? And it it took a, a really long time, but it, it really felt good to see work that at the time was pretty shocking, uh, have some long-lasting impact. Um, but the, the story there was really sort of a, a David and Goliath thing where Web2 was taking over everyone's lives and 
people were using all these social apps sort of with reckless abandon and not thinking about, well, why is this free? People were using Facebook and farm, but like normal people, not, not nerds, like your aunts and uncles and parents were using these things and had no idea uh, that their information was actually being sold. Um, so fast forward a lot of years, uh, I, I spent a lot of time in Web2 working as a technical executive. Uh, I spent most of the past four years working as the CEO of the Electric Coin Company, which is the company that brought the Zcash protocol into existence. So for those that aren't aware, Zcash uh, uses novel cryptography, specifically zero-knowledge proofs, to solve for uh, privacy hazards in originally the Bitcoin network and the Bitcoin protocol. So Satoshi Nakamoto herself in the white paper said, hey, Bitcoin is pseudonymous, uh, but it's not anonymous. And that difference, I think, has become increasingly important as companies like Chainalysis and others have become really good at mapping out transaction graphs in crypto networks once that pseudonymity is connected to a real world identity. It's basically game over. You have no privacy online. And this is particularly interesting to me because I, I've lived now through multiple iterations of the internet changing everyone's lives. And in Web 2, it was read, Web 2, or Web 1 was read, Web 2 is read, write, uh, Web 3 is read, write, own. But the problem that we have right now is that as Web 3 starts to get traction, uh, the current state of privacy on Web3 is going to create an, a, an enormous regression in the amount of confidentiality that we experience. And most people don't know this. Most people aren't aware of this. And that's because we're not yet using Web3 for anything meaningful beyond speculation. So what I'm working on today uh, is a, a validator company called Zanshin Dojo. Uh, we validate on a couple of networks and we try to only spend time and energy leaning in on projects that can really help to remediate uh, this gap around privacy and security as we move into a Web3 world. Yeah, I, I feel I'm probably not as credentialed as, as David here. That was a, a very long history in the, in the security industry. But personally, my history is I, I come from the traditional banking world. I worked in uh, essentially insurance, um, superannuation, the Australian banking sector, which is a pretty small sort of um, scene for the better part of 12 years or so. And, you know, really being embedded in that industry is what got me interested in crypto to begin with. And um, speaking to David, you're saying uh, about um, Bitcoin being, you know, pseudonymous, not fully anonymous. At the time, when it first started coming out, it effectively was anonymous, you know, because you would either mine it yourself, you know, sure your IP address is leaked and so on. But it was basically anonymous at the time. and Or you'd get it from some little exchange that some guy's running in a basement somehow and you would wire them some cash or whatever. Um, ever since then, I really got behind, I mean, personally, in an ideological way, that the concept of, you know, uh, economic information is just another form of privacy information. And I started to kind of get on board with this concept that, you know, we should have a right to spend our money in the, in the ways that we want and not be treated as criminals if we don't want our employer to see all the follow-on transactions after they send us some money, um, for example. So, yeah, I sort of got into Bitcoin. I mean, I'm, I'm knowing that it's a public ledger and that this day would come where chain analysis is, um, you know, very prevalent and everything is basically open. And 
um, I sort of got Monero on my radar. So I know um, Zcash and Monero have a bit of, uh, um, let's say, co-opetition <laughs> um, going on. Um, but that sort of hit my radar. And I won't really say that I contributed to Monero, but I did I contributed a couple of uh, Docker images that worked um, well with fully integrated with NVIDIA graphics cards and, and so on. And a couple of grammatical errors and things I changed on one of the Monero books. But other, I would call myself just an enthusiast rather than a, a real contributor. So after my stint in the financial world, I moved to Europe just over three years ago to put my feet firmly in the blockchain world and you know quit my old job and just um, wanted to get into it fully. Um, and I've been a blockchain engineer for that whole time, working on Solidity up and down the stack infrastructure. I worked with a, a company builder incubator here in Berlin. Um, and recently I founded my own validator company called Gladiator Labs. And the company basically got a Got to start with Cello, which is a kind of a very unique, I would say, commercially um, to operate since they reward the validators in, in CUSD, which makes it very uncomplicated, you know, not dealing with, you know, being long on tokens and risk and all of this sort of thing. But the reason I created this company is more going back to my ideological roots of sending money should be as easy as sending an email or sending, you know, a signal message or, or WhatsApp and, and so on and not uh, operated by these these large incumbents that, you know, have a lot of interest in making sure that it's slow and unwieldy and all the other things that are, that are wrong with the sort of money transmis- transmission system. So I still had that ideology behind me and I had a lot of technical experience that just matched up with it, you know, DevOps and, and full stack development. We don't really have as strong a, a thesis as um, Sanjin Dojo in, in that, I mean, we're just kind of kicking off and, and getting incorporated. So getting involved with the, the Staking Defense League from, from day one as part of the founding charter really kind of, you know, made it clear that, that I should, should perhaps have a stronger value standing point than just going anything that makes money is good, which I you know, don't really believe in that. So I think it'll come to a point where we need to be selective about, you know, what networks we actually want to support. But for now, we're just kind of, you know, storming and forming and, um, yeah, seeing, seeing if we can be part of this ecosystem. That's great. Wait, let, me, uh, let me comment on sure. something Aaron mentioned briefly. He, he mentioned uh, the co-opetition between Zcash and Monero. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I need to make it really clear that the tribalism and the feuding that I see between factions within crypto, it just needs to stop. So oh. I, I, I love Zcash. I believe in Zcash. I love Monero. I believe in Monero. I just want people to have choice. Privacy really, really boils down to choice. Uh, Aaron's example of your employer paying your, your wages, your salary in crypto assets, and then having the ability to then track every downstream transaction and say, oh, geez, why did Aaron spend some money at their liquor store? Or what is this at the fertility clinic or the, uh, the, the abortion clinic? These types of infringements into our privacy, I think, are unacceptable. So uh, the need for technologies to exist that enable choice about what financial information do I want to share is is critical. Uh, And so I think it's a tremendous waste of time when people in our ecosystem spend time fighting each other, uh, like Zcash versus Monero or fill in the blank, whichever feud de jour is, instead of fighting the common enemy, which is this 
hard push towards a dystopian surveillance state uh, centered around digital currencies and their ability to be trapped. That kind of uh, hones in on the the big question that I do want to poke at a little bit in this conversation. I'd like to to table it for now, but I'm just going to sort of set it up and we can circle back to it. And I'm sure we'll circle back to it a few times. And really the, the headline is why privacy, right? Or or rather your counter argument to privacy is not needed by, by honest actors. And I know all, all of us have very strong opinions and probably most of the people who listen to this podcast will have strong opinions. So there may be a little preaching to the choir, but perhaps selfishly, I'm always interested in bolstering my own argument as I talk to people who are are less privacy focused, because as somebody who grew up on the heels of all these Web2 companies, uh, really just being central to uh, my life during adolescence before I really had the full conception of of what was happening, I think uh, a lot of younger people just, it feels like an intrinsic part of life. And so unfortunately, while the burden of proof, you know, in my opinion, should be on the person trying to surveil rather on the one being surveilled. I think, you know, we have to accept that where we are is probably more towards the other side of that coin. And and so, you know, in a democratic leaning society, you have to have more people who think the way that you do. And so you have to accept that, you know, you have to win some people over with arguments that you would perhaps uh, rather not dignify. So I do want to circle back to the the why privacy thing. And if you have something burning to say, feel free to say it. But where I would like to go now, and I'll push it back to, to Aaron, is I'd like to do a kind of a brief summary of what happened in Tornado Cash, what, you know, the kind of initial aftershocks. And then maybe, Aaron, I know you were, you were pretty early into Tornado Cash, so uh, perhaps uh, your intro to it. Yeah, sure. Um Wait, you're not using my real name, are you? Um, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I say that comment um, somewhat facetiously <laughs> as a joke, but but also kind of to make the point that I, I don't think people, you know, to have that level of fear that, that you can't be, you know, mildly tainted with some open source software, even by name association, is like absolutely insane. Like, and I, yeah. <laughs> I would hate that to be the case going forward. So yeah, I'm completely fine to talk about this. Um, yeah, and again, I, I don't have any technical involvement with Tornado Cash. I, I, I had thought, but I was trying to look this up before our discussion, that somehow they they arose out of a hackathon. I had thought it was F Berlin um, in 2019, but I couldn't find any reference to it. So I may have my wires crossed there, but. Um, so a bit of backstory on, on what happened. So Tornado Cash is a, um, a non, uh, I guess, a privacy-preserving um, smart contract on the Ethereum network where you can send in. Originally, it was only for Ethereum, and, um, and then later on, it supported other ERC-20 tokens. It puts you in a pool and then essentially a mixing set, and the longer you leave it in there and the more people use it, the, the larger the mixing set is and the, and the more anonymous it is. And then uh, using some fancy zero-knowledge um, cryptography that, um, David, you're probably better to explain technically, you get a kind of cryptographic proof that you've deposited, and then using that deposit proof, you can then withdraw the same amount, and it's kind of just you know, one pool. You can't link the depositor and the, and the withdrawer. I mean, unless obviously you deposit and withdraw to the same account, but that would be, you know, that would uh, remove the point of the protocol. So, 
Yeah, it, it is, in, in the shortest way to describe it, a mixing service for, for Ethereum, a, a privacy service for Ethereum. And yeah, it, it was used by hackers, like no one is going to deny that. It was used by people that stole things um, from people and so on. And, you know, it was also used for legitimate purposes, going back to um, your question before about why privacy and there are a myriad of reasons why people might want to use this. But the recent news that, that came out, I think it was just last week, was that um, the, the US Treasury Department put a whole bunch of Tornado Cash smart contracts and uh, recipient addresses on, on a kind of sanctions list, on, on an OFAC um, sanctions list, along with another protocol uh, called Blender.io. I think I, I, I'd never actually heard of this, but I, I think it was more for Bitcoin. So, yeah, and uh, off, the, off the heels of that, other... Uh, American-based companies had to follow suit. For example, Circle with USDC, they pretty much immediately, somehow it was like they knew this was coming, pretty much immediately blacklisted all of those addresses on the on the OFAC list because USDC, their their sort of stablecoin product, has a blacklist functionality within the within the token. Um, everyone knew that was already there, but it had been used very sparingly in the past. I think there was only thirty or something addresses on it. So they immediately blocked all of those addresses. Then uh, quite shortly after that, I think Aave was one of the biggest names to start blocking people who had been uh, interacted with, with Tornado Cash at all, essentially. And you know, to prove how silly this is enforcement-wise, there were, I, I wouldn't say them, call them trolls. I, I guess they're kind of trolls. <laughs> they were dusting people's accounts with Tornado Cash you know, small deposits of 0.1 ETH and, and so on to named ENS personalities and, and all this kind of thing, um, which due to the overzealous blocking on various protocols kind of stopped them from being able to use it. Um, I think DYDX had a, has a third-party um, kind of compliance service that they use who were a bit overzealous as well, and they started blocking people who, you know, had various levels of distance away from Tornado um, cash addresses and, and all of this. So um, it, it's... I would say it's not an understatement to say that it lit, you know, the crypto community on fire a little bit. Um, perhaps we've been a bit complacent and just assuming everything would be the status quo as it has been and everything would, would continue on as it was. But oh, one last thing, which is even more egregious, I think, is I, I, I'm not sure maybe one of you know whether it was GitHub who did it or the developers that did it, who just deleted all of the, the Tornado Cash repositories. If it was Microsoft, that's kind of insane. Um, and yeah, I, I just really, really decry any sort of open source, you know, cryptographic technology becoming essentially banned in some way. You know, that's, to me, that's that's akin to open SSL being, you know, taken down from, um, from GitHub or, or the developers being attacked. My understanding Google. is that it was GitHub that suspended the accounts, not the other way around. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was the developers just erring on the side of caution or, or um, GitHub. But yeah, it's kind of insane for them to act so quickly to, to do that, really. And then I, I think only a couple of days later, one of the, I think, suspected developers was arrested in Amsterdam. I don't, didn't follow the, the full details of that. And, and I think it might have been related to they thought he was profiting from some laundering service or something like that. 
But yeah, all of this put together is just really uh, brought all these issues back into the into light again. And yeah, there's been a lot of bad takes online of the, you know, if you've got nothing to hide, you know, what's the problem kind of thing. So yeah, maybe I'll pass it on to you, David, to see if I missed anything out of that. Somewhere. No, I think that was great. And so in the, the time I spent working directly on Zcash, I would often use Ethereum. And specifically, I would start, I would do a live demo using my own ENS name. So I'm alchemydc.eth. I would put that in Etherscan and I'd put it on screen for everyone to look at. And there it was for everyone to see my entire transaction history with this Ethereum account. And if you want to kind of have a fresh start in Ethereum, you can create a new account, sure. But how do you fund it? And uh, that, that initial linkage between some account that has some ETH and the new account that you create creates this bootstrapping problem. And that's specifically what Tornado was designed to solve is I want to have a new identity on the Ethereum network. I want to be able to separate, for example, uh, work from play. I want to be able to have a private life that my employer cannot see. Tornado specifically enables that use case. And it, it does it in a way that had some rough edges. So basically you had to put in specific denominations. You had to wait a considerable amount of time. The longer you wait, the more privacy you have. Uh, and the, the privacy of the entire system depends on the, the anonymity set. So how many people are participating in this pool? Uh, and as the Tornado technology proliferated to other networks, that's a separate pool as well. So there's fragmentation of the anonymity set. So there were some, some real challenges there, but I think Tornado is a really good example of one way to get some rudimentary privacy or confidentiality on the Ethereum network. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember meeting with the Tornado team early on, uh, shortly after they launched the contracts on Mainnet, and they were very thoughtful and very considerate in their approach to how they were going to navigate the regulatory landscape. Uh, these were not folks that I think were building a tool to facilitate money laundering. These were not people that were profiting from money laundering that may have been happening on this tool that they released into the world. Yeah, it wasn't now, a Silk Road, in other words. No, and I will say that when I saw the news of the, the dev being arrested, I suspect that they have, I suspect there's more to the story than he just released Tornado Cash into the world. So I, I'm going to wait until we see what the, that indictment or what charges are brought against. And it may well be uh, that there was something going on there that was below board. But I will say that the simple act of creating privacy-preserving technology and deploying it onto the Ethereum network should not be illegal. Uh, and that GitHub should not have done what they did to freeze the account of that developer. Now, I will say that something that Tornado did that made them a larger target for this type of adverse regulation was that it's my understanding that they operated the front end into the system. So it's one thing to create a smart contract. It's another thing to deploy it onto the Ethereum mainnet, but then to create uh, a web front end that then interacts with that contract and operate that front end, I think puts a bullseye on your back and makes it such that the authorities can come to you and say, hey, you know, such and such threat actor was using your system, stop them from doing that. And as the operator of the front end, you could actually stop them from doing it. Now, they could go interact directly with the contract and not use your front end and mm -hmm. still do their bad thing. 
Uh, but just the simple act of operating a front end into Web3 is a, is a control point that I think creates a perception of liability that the devs of projects like this would do well to, to avoid. Now, I will say that I, I mentioned that I've lived through now multiple iterations of cool new technology is developed that has all sorts of potential. It can be used for both good and evil and regulators jump to the wrong conclusion. So we saw this with the original crypto wars in the 90s where uh, strong encryption was developed, specifically public key encryption. So RSA was developed here in the US, Diffie-Hellman was developed in the UK, strangely right around the same time. But what this allowed you to do is to securely exchange information with a party with whom you had never previously communicated before and didn't have another channel through which to exchange key material. So this was a quantum leap forward in computer science, and it literally unlocked Web2 as we know it. Before this, there was no e-commerce. There was no buying anything online. It was huge. Uh, but the powers that be, specifically the United States government said, whoa, this is super scary, and we can't let this proliferate. So uh, the, 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 the rules at the time were that strong encryption was treated as a munition, and technologists like myself and others building the internet at this time, were specifically precluded from exporting anything stronger than 56-bit DES, which we knew the government could break. Uh, and this is not at all dissimilar from what we're seeing now with uh, the tornado folks being put on the OFAC list. This is that knee-jerk, like, whoa, we can't export strong encryption. And what changed was that... Uh, the powers that be started to get an understanding that the internet and specifically web two and e-commerce was going to reshape society and that the net benefit of the world being connected securely in a way that enabled this entire new industrial revolution online dramatically exceeded the detriment of some terrorist sect using strong encryption to plan an attack, that sort of thing. Yeah, and and, and uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off if, if you were going to go, but that's that's kind of the thread, one of the threads that I wanted to pull on and I, I have this from the SDL uh, chat, Aaron, where you, you, you mentioned being bullish on the fact that this was happening. You know, my interpretation of that is just because it's such a poor point of attack. Then like, if you are going to make this distinction, you're changing a lot of backward looking policy and it opens up a lot of questions that you probably don't want to look at. The, the thing that I guess I want to drill into is, uh, for me, is the distinction between the fact that there's value like actual currency attached to some of this and, and how, if and how that changes uh, the, the consideration. So for example, you know, uh, when you're talking about, okay, yes, no one should, it should not be illegal for somebody to post open source code, maintain that code, and, and people use that as, as they please, right? You know, getting into the front end, but, but also like tornado cash, charges fees. Those fees go somewhere to the developers. And so to profit in any way off of something that you've put out there that is being put to both good and bad use, I think that's the 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 mire that we're coin, sort of going in. And I, I obviously agree that um you know the benefits outweigh risk and, and so on. But I guess I'd be interested in in how you both think about the fact that value is attached and the different dimension that that brings. If there is one, maybe maybe you don't think that there is. Yeah, sure. I, I think that's a, a good point that you raise actually about um, the, the fees and so on, because 
they did they did release a token, the Torn token, you know, a couple of years into the into the project, which I believe operated as a sort of governance DAO. But there certainly would have been developers attached to that that would have you know made some income from that, and it, it would be quite a shame in in the. Um, who was that gangster that, that was eventually got on tax charges or something? Al Pacino. <laughs> um, Al, Al Pacino. Al Capone. <laughs> That's yeah, funny because yeah. we're from Chicago. It would, be, um, it, it would be kind of a shame if it ended up being something related to Torn and a bit of a bit of a kick in, in, into um, other other DAOs which are operating out there. But um, yeah, I. I I guess that's kind of addressing the value that the team or the or the um, individuals behind it might have. But are you asking more what about the value proposition or the value that's actually moving through the network itself, or or just where people may have profited? Well, from? it seems like to me, right? Because like a lot of what we're talking about is like real decentralization, right? We talk about front ends, right? That as a as an attack point because that's you know something that. Uh, can be shut down, right? Somebody can fork it, but there, if there is a front end maintained by a team, that that is a point of attack. Mm-hmm. And in much the same way, I feel like if there is value being extracted from a team by the product, um, you know that that's also a point of attack. Like if everything is built open source, public good, there's really nobody, nothing anybody can say, um, mm-hmm. you know. And and the team is truly decentralized. Like you as the the operator. Uh, own a, a non-significant portion of the tokens for whatever the network is. So even if they were to like come after you, it wouldn't materially affect the network. All of those things are like, you know, the 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 blue sky vision that we all have for the the protocols that will become foundational to the operation of Web3. But obviously we're we're very, very far from that. And so yeah, my my question is like is that absolutely necessary for for things like this to exist? I don't don't think so, Kevin. So I think that it's necessary and and it's appropriate for a team like Tornado to be able to create something unique and useful and to spend time and energy putting it out into the world and to be rewarded for that. I think that's fine. And I think that uh, does it create a point of control and a point of attack? Yes. And the reason that that matters so much right now is that the good use cases of a tool like Tornado don't dramatically outweigh the bad. And so uh, something that I've learned through the years working in this space is I used to have a much more idealistic sort of purist view of things where it's just like, no, the technology should be really sound and law enforcement just needs to do a better job. And like, we're not going to compromise anywhere. And my friend and, and colleague, Ashkan Sultani, who worked with me on that Wall Street Journal piece, he is a... Uh, I went down a more technical uh, path. He went down a more policy-centric path. He spent some time in the White House. He spent time as the CTO of the FTC. He's presently the chief privacy officer of the state of California. And what when he and I get into it, sometimes over beers about this particular issue, his position is basically that when technologies that have strong capability like this, like really strong encryption, like Zcash, for example, or Tornado, uh, there needs to exist a mechanism to relieve the pressure. When terrible things happen, for example, the San Bernardino terrorist attack where the FBI showed up and said, Apple, you absolutely positively need to decrypt this phone. And Apple said, we can't do that because if we did, it would open this Pandora's box of threat actors everywhere being able to decrypt anyone's phone. That was a valid point. Um, And this would have really, it would have gone to the mat. 
the, the pressure was going to continue to build. And the thing that relieved the pressure was not Apple capitulating and backdooring the entire iPhone ecosystem. It was another security firm stepping forward and presumably using an O-Day to get access to this device. But the point is that it relieved the pressure. The FBI was able to get what they wanted out of the phone. And everybody, you and I, don't have a compromised iPhone or a weakened iPhone, cryptographically speaking, going forward. Now, it's early days for Web3, but bad people are going to do bad stuff with Web3, just like they have with the traditional banking system. And I think some interesting comparisons have been made to show the order of magnitude of the money laundering that was allegedly happening on Tornado compared to that that happens through major brand name banks. And I think what's happening with Web3 is not yet uh, material when we look at it compared to what's happening in the, the legacy financial system. But the point is, there needs to be a mechanism to relieve pressure. And I would argue that it shouldn't be a backdoor. It shouldn't be a cryptographic golden key that law well, enforcement let me, has. Let me, let me uh, stop you there and, and say, what would you say to that uh, release valve uh, at least in the current state. Now, obviously, I'm this is sort of devil's advocate, uh, being centralized exchanges, right? If what we want is to be able to start uh, private addresses, at least private as far as your employer or you know your neighbor is concerned, you can put money into a centralized exchange, start a new wallet, and send it off that, that centralized exchange to the new wallet. The government knows, your bank knows, the centralized exchange knows, but those are trusted actors, trusted by the state. They have privacy, uh, you know, things that they need to uh, maintain internally in, in those processes. There's regulation uh, for that. And so I, I feel like that's kind of a, a direction certainly the government will try to nudge people in. And yeah, I, I wonder, you know, it... Yeah, it, I, it, I'm, I, I consider myself a pragmatist. And yet I'd say that that proposed policy is way too far towards dystopia. And the reason I say that is that having spent 20 plus years in cybersecurity, centralized anything is a, is a, it's basically a honeypot. It's a place where compromise happens. Uh, I can't even tell you how many times my data has been compromised and I, I'm not alone in this. It just, it happens. So I would argue that uh, as a, as a near term compromise, a better relief valve would be to help educate law enforcement and policymakers and regulators as to how they can successfully chase and track and find persons of interest uh, using better tools and technologies and data analytics. Uh, specifically, like Tornate, let me tell you something. The security of Zcash is awesome. The security and privacy of Monero is pretty good. Not as good as Zcash, but pretty good. Uh, the, the privacy and security properties of Tornado, it is not that good. You do not need to be a, an amazing James Bond level uh, analyst to be able to de-anonymize transactions on Tornado. So rather than say you can only hold crypto assets on centralized exchanges, I would rather help train up uh, the next generation of law enforcement to be able to successfully pursue bad guys using tools like Tornado. Because I believe that they, there, is, there are plenty of very bad people that can be caught if you put some time and effort into it. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with what you're saying in, in that... Um I think edu education is kind of important because, and that's why I'm not long-term really worried about this this sanctions round because when you actually analyze it, it doesn't make sense. Like you said before, people on the OFAC list, there's no people on it. It's They've listed smart contract addresses. 
Um, I, I believe so. There might be a couple of named individuals um, related to the other the other blender or whatever. Um, but yeah, the, the fact that they're, they're so misinformed that they think a a smart contract without any administrative control that's just been deployed and and the keys thrown away um, can you know, it, it's not even in the same category as other entities which are normally sanctioned. It's not, it's not a... Yeah, I think what's happening here, Aaron, is that they are well-intentioned, but poorly informed about how the technology works. And so through their action, they are uh, harming people that are innocent and that need privacy afforded to them to try to catch bad guys that are just going to change their tactics and find another way to keep doing the bad things that they're doing. So... Hmm. Uh, and this is not the first time we've seen regulators and policymakers make well-intentioned but poorly informed decisions. I agree, and and this is why I'm not super worried about it as well because these sort of opening salvos they all happen like David you mentioned about exporting cryptography. You know, it was literally you couldn't travel with knowledge of what boiled down to large prime numbers, and you know, and the the reason why I'm I'm bullish on on this in in long term is because coming out swinging from the government against these technologies it shows that they are working to some extent they are doing what they are meant to do um just like you know ssl and rsa you know um in earlier days um so it's kind of a, a signal that um people are developing things in the right direction that it's actually caught the attention of a government to to go out and and yes, it's a very misinformed and an and odd like sanction that doesn't really make sense. But I think it's just the opening salvo that someone has got a tap on the shoulder and some three-letter agency and they said, my boss is telling me that his boss is telling me that we need to do something about X. And they've gone, okay, you've got two weeks to do something about X. And they came up with this, you know, you know, half-brained thing, which doesn't make a lot of sense, but it shows that they've done something and you know, in, in five or 10 years when they get better advisors and they get um, people that are more crypto natives, you know, moving through the ranks of all these organizations, I think the, you know, the regulatory environment will, will smooth itself out a little bit, just like it has where, where, you know, SSL is everywhere now. It's basically, you know, the default. That was actually, it's required. So US federal government websites are required now to use strong cryptography. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I tend to be a little more cynical in the sense that uh, rather than uh, incompetence, I, I just kind of feel like there's a, a sort of a war game going on where the, the the point from the government's end is to start the conversation as far down the throat of the people that they are, are trying to go against as possible. So that's where the negotiations begin as opposed to a more equal foot. But maybe table that for a second. I, I want to skip ahead and, and talk about validators specifically and you know what are the risks to validators in environments like this Aaron and I, I guess I I feel like not everybody would be as, as brave as you I mean obviously you've, you've done nothing wrong or whatever but people tend to get get skittish in environments like this and I'm interested in how you've been thinking through this what kind of uh, risks you see as somebody you know perhaps closer to it than than some of the rest of us well, firstly, I think people on the internet forget that the internet isn't the United States also. And <laughs> although the United States has a very long arm, I think for the general non-US citizen, you know, 
Um, it, it's not. I mean, of course, yeah, the U.S. does drive a lot of internet, um, you know, standards and knowledge and so on. Excuse me, one second. You can cut this out, but can you hear my dog? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can hear the pup. Yeah. One sec. I'll just walk go. me, walk me, Aaron. It's walk past me. working time. Walk me, Aaron. One sec. Once a, a barking circle starts in the um, <laughs> the area, it's all on it. Yeah. Um, sorry, I forgot what I was. Uh, where were I? Sentence. Uh, I was talking about the the risks to validators, oh, yeah. um, and you know, kind of filtered through your personal experience. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, when I actually had because we're we're currently in the process of incorporating in Switzerland, and we chose that, you know, basically because. Yeah, we went through all of the different countries. A lot of crypto companies will start up in the Caymans or BVI or Malta and things like this, and or or even uh, an EU country. And we did a lot of research and just the regulatory landscape in the EU is is you know quite you know there's new some new laws coming that might even require validators or infrastructure operators to be somewhat like money transmitter type licensing. Switzerland is a little bit slower to to move in those terms, um, and it has very strong privacy history, um, especially financial privacy. Again, another um, history that can be used both, you know, for nefarious reasons or, or for just law-abiding companies that you know don't want everyone to know exactly what what each person is doing and so on. Plus, there were some other big blockchain companies that that had um, moved to Switzerland. I think. I think Ave might be based there themselves. I'm not 100 percent sure, but yeah, even where we incorporated was part of our strategy before tornado. This whole thing sort of blew up. Is that yeah? I, I'm a pragmatist as well. I, I want a regulatory environment that is sensible, slow moving, and you know not knee jerk reactive to to the latest like headline of the of the week sort of thing. Um, so that was one aspect there. Um, you know, we did actually have some USDC, and I kind of raised the question, and I was like, "Oh, are they?" You know, I've interacted with Tornado myself in the past, and at this point, all of my addresses are so I, I didn't bother to really close the loop on a lot of them. I was trying out Tornado because I thought it was an interesting technology, and I was like, "Oh, I'm going to try this out. Send point one here and there, and you know, everything all got mixed in, and I just essentially." shrug my shoulders and, and moved on. And then like, you know, two years later, I'm kind of like, oh, my the accounts that have, you know, moved in with my corporate um, Ethereum assets are now kind of tainted forever, right? Like, you know, the money has to come from somewhere. David, you're talking about, you know, starting afresh with a new identity or even just segmenting, you know, um, X funds from Y funds and, and so on. And, if you go so many hops, everyone's account is attached to another somehow. Like, you know, where, where will the kind of infection stop? So we actually sat down amongst my partners and we were like, is this a risk to us? Because they knew that I'd interacted with Tornado in the past and it was multiple hops away by now. But still, I, given that USDC had a has an active blacklist that they can activate at any time, we thought we need to... We need to move off USDC that, that we had. And that's what I've been doing the last week, um, you know, moving things just to kind of break that link. And breaking that link without using a privacy-preserving technology like um, Tornado Cash generally involves having to move it to a 
something that kind of mixes for you, like an exchange. Of course, not, you know, trying to do anything underhanded there. I have fully verified accounts on, you know, KYC on, on various exchanges, but it is kind of the, the poor man's way of, of breaking a link um, between transactions in a sense. Of course, even though, you know, exchanges will be compelled and they already do report um, for tax reporting and so on to say, you know, oh, where did these funds come from and so on. But, you know, I just wanted to protect myself from a technical point of view and, and not have that kind of, um, you know, taint, I guess, <laughs> on, on, on USDC now. And I'm actually not even sure if, yeah, it, it it's almost carries a risk of its own, like this this asset, because... You don't know, um, you know, somebody, some source sends a USDC now, and then suddenly, you're you've, you've circled yourself into this 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 loop. Um, I had that same sort of frustrating and stressful reaction as well, Aaron. And having been an early user of Tornado, I thought, oh boy, you know, yeah. couldn't even remember which accounts or to what extent. My understanding is that the sanctions that have been applied now are not retroactive. Uh, so we're okay, but those celebs that got dusted are not, which is, a, I think, ironic and a little bit, uh, it's got to be frustrating for them and for the people trying to enforce the sanctions. Um, but it, it is frustrating. I think on one hand, we've got algo stablecoins that have their own set of risks, but now the centralized stablecoins have these other risks. It's, it makes it uh, more arduous to, to find a path through this. And I think Kevin raised an interesting question, which is, as validators, we're block producers. Right, that's that's our role in the network is to be reliable, to be secure, uh, to be robust, but basically to uh, produce blocks that are that comply with the consensus rules of a given network. So then, what do we do when X, Y, and Z agency or law enforcement or uh, policy shows up and says you must never mine a block that has a transaction from X or from Y? Uh, what what is our role there? And I think uh, that's a difficult position to be in. I think that we, we, as we build cryptographic protocols, we never want to be deciding uh, what is what constitutes a good transaction or not. And I, I look back on Web2, and specifically, I use the example of Cloudflare as a Web2 company now that's been in existence for a really long time. They run some of the most robust, most performant infrastructure on the internet. And for the longest time, they refuse to lean in and say, we are going to censor uh, customer X, Y, or Z. And their reasoning behind that was really solid, which was that, look, we're just the pipe. We don't decide what constitutes good speech or bad speech. Uh, and there have been just a handful of times where they've actually stepped in and, and censored anybody. But it's really, it's a slippery slope. You do it once and then suddenly you're called upon to do it again and again and again. So on the validator side, I'll say that to date, we have never been tapped by anyone to censor anybody. Uh, I have a very strong preference for us to evolve our protocols uh, to be specifically designed to be censorship resistant. So the Zcash protocol is a great example of a network that is censorship resistant by design. Uh, now it's proof of work, so there are no validators in the Zcash network, but for shielded transactions, miners of the Zcash protocol cannot be forced to censor anybody because they literally do not know uh, who the counterparties are in a particular transaction. I have seen cryptographic implementations for proof-of-stake networks that use threshold encryption and decryption in an interesting way. Uh, and what's, what's interesting is that these implementations were designed 
to mitigate MEV. But I think that same approach may actually provide meaningful censorship resistance. So a lot of work to be done in this area. Uh, but I, I look forward to a day in which block producers on most networks that we're active on cannot be called upon to censor uh, participants in transactions. And again, I acknowledge that the relief valve needs to exist. Bad people doing bad things at scale need to be caught and they need to be punished. But the right way to do that is not by building blacklists into the consensus layer. I, I absolutely agree. And I think that having it be impossible in the sense that we just don't know as validators is like a prerequisite for these systems to be come core infrastructure to society. But a step above that and something that uh, is is definitely feels immediate, Aaron, I believe you're also a validator on on NIM, right? So NIM, as, as I've uh, taken the time to understand exactly what they're doing a little bit better, it does seem like at present it's a mixing service for information uh, akin to a Tor. It's an existing, it's an additional level of encryption you can put on, on messages uh, rather than a mixing service for transactions. So that makes me feel, at least in the medium term, that coupled with their their sort of minimal scale that it probably won't fall well, in the NIM, process. NIM is but, all about network level privacy. And this is super interesting because right. for, for all this noise about we need to blacklist the tornado uh, smart contract addresses. If I was law enforcement, I would literally be going after the network layer, literally pulling IP access logs from the cloud provider that are serving up the tornado front end to find the bad guys. Now, NIM will make that much harder. And I think that's necessary because I think the network layer, like even a protocol like Zcash that has really strong on-chain privacy, falls apart at the network layer when folks are announcing their transactions over clear text IPv4 uh, transport layers. So network privacy is going to be important. But this is what I mean when law enforcement needs to evolve. Like as it stands today, law enforcement can catch all kinds of bad guys simply by focusing their attention at the network layer when folks are using anonymity enhancing tools like Tornado. As the network layer security improves, law enforcement will need to move up the stack. Maybe they'll need to do layer eight, uh, layer seven attacks against particular threat actors, but they're going to need to keep evolving because we need to keep improving the layers of the stack to protect good people using these tools for good reasons. Uh, Aaron, I don't know if you had anything else, but yeah, I, I think I am uh, interested to see you know, if the day comes where it's not hey, can you censor these addresses? It's just, hey, you cannot validate on this blockchain, right? Yeah, it, it would be great, as you said, David, to make it effectively impossible to, to reorder transactions. Yeah, I was actually having a conversation with uh, someone about Bitcoin and, you know, they, they were saying, uh, I, I'll say that they were a, a mild Bitcoin maxi, put it, put it that way. And they were arguing that, you know, this kind of censorship that we're talking about is not, Possible on Bitcoin, but as far as I understood it, you can you can as long as you can build a valid block, you can choose what goes into that valid block, um, at least in a proof of work sense. Um, but not in um, Zcash, for example, if you can't um, if it's all kind of shielded. But um, yeah, it would be good to, and it would kind of solve the MEV problem as well as as you mentioned. If if you literally had to construct the box, uh, con construct the block in a, a pre-formatted way or in a way that just simply selects by gas or, or anything like that. But it's probably pretty complicated with the mempool and not everyone seeing the same copy of it and, and these 
types of concerns. But um, yeah, you, meant, you mentioned Tor and, and NIM there. I, I actually, part of my kind of interest in, in this as a technologist, I actually used to run relays for Tor um, back in the day when that first came out. For similar reasons, I, I was really interested in the in the technology, and you know, even in the Tor discussion forums at the time, people were like, oh, "I'm so scared to run an exit node because who knows what's going to be coming out of that exit node? I'm going to paint a target on my back. I'm just going to be a relay. I don't want any uh, don't want any trouble." You know, um, it was kind of this taboo to to run an exit node in, in a way, which is what makes the whole thing thing really work. And yeah, as you said, um, NIM is similar to Tor, um, but it adds um, adds some additional things that Tor doesn't have. Like it, I think Tor is a fixed fixed amount of hops. NIM adds some some timing obfuscation and um, and some other packet noise into into the network layer as well. So um, it's intended to be a yeah a kind of competitor and a, and a step up as far as I see so far. So. Yeah, specifically NIM's value proposition is that it's resilient against threat actors that have nation-state level observability. So for a, an adversary like the NSA that can literally observe packets entering any point on the inter internet and exiting any other point on the internet, Tor falls apart in that threat model. But NIM does not. It introduces a little bit of additional latency, but should still prove to be sufficient for interactive applications like uh, sending and receiving blockchain transactions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and so it, go ahead, Aaron. Uh, I was just going to add it. Yeah, I think one of the one of the known attack methods at, at the kind of nation state level for Tor is just to run ninety percent of the exit nodes, <laughs> right? And then you know right. you can directly inspect everything. You know, nine tenths of all, all the traffic, effectively. Um, it's very expensive, of course, but um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Similar attacks in the blockchain world. Well, it sounds like, uh, at least for the three of us on this call, the Tornado Cash headline isn't affecting our underlying calculus on where we're validating. Because like you guys, what brought me into this space, I ran a music publication. Um, so I was basically in the advertising business. And you know that gives you basically all of the bad that uh, Web2 can be used for, shoved in your face day in and day out. And it seemed to me that Web3 and, and crypto was the only viable incentive system that could allow us to at least push some of the ownership of people's data and, and the privacy and the externalities that come back, uh, push the power back into the hands of the everyday person to some measurable degree. Obviously, it's always going to be a tug of war, but... I, I haven't seen any other solutions that that look uh, in any way viable. I don't know if y'all have any more comments on you know just, uh, just on validator that, calculus. Yeah, on yeah. That, Kevin, I think it's Moxie Marlinspike that said. I think when he was on Joe Rogan's podcast, he said bad business models create bad technology that create bad outcomes, and that's what we have with Web two. We literally have an ad driven internet, uh, so the experience is bad, and then we're unwittingly the product. And fixing that, it's a systemic change. Like it's a foundational change. And Brave is one company that came out and said, we're going to go right at the jugular of this thing and we're going to pay people for their attention. It's built on uh, Web3, but they've abstracted away the Web3 plumbing, if you will, to an extent that normal people can use the Brave browser and be rewarded for their attention without needing to understand 
things like wallets and consensus and exchanges and all that stuff. So I, I'm super long brave. I really love what the team there has done. And I do think that we will not successfully move away from this paradigm of unwittingly being the product, unwittingly being data mined, unwittingly being breached until new models like that uh, propagated by the brave team take hold. Yeah, I just to I, I agree with that. I've used Brave pretty much since it came out as well for, for similar reasons. I just wanted to loop back with what you're saying there. And, and I think it goes back to what we were talking about at the start about why privacy. The incentives are just too strong. It, we can't go to organizations. You know, once information became digital, you know, it's just too easy to, to scoop it all up. It's too easy to collect information. And we can't go to organizations and say, please don't do that. The incentives are just far too high. And so we have to just make it technologically infeasible. And that's why I think all of these technologies are important to, to support. And, you know, I'm always interested when something new comes out and, you know, you hear rumors, oh, Aztec is coming out, this is coming out. Um, I support all of the, the innovation in the space. And um, also to look back to, to what you said, David, the, the, the tribalism is just terrible everywhere and all experiments and, and should really be, be fostered. That's just too important. Completely agree. So now I'm going to take a moment to plug projects that I have no affiliation with, but yeah. I think are very, very uh, interesting to watch from a privacy perspective. So you already mentioned NIM looking to solve network level privacy, which I think is critically important and nobody really is thinking about that yet. Um, Aztec uh, uses strong cryptography uh, on the ZK side. I think that they're V2 is called ZK.money. So this is looking specifically to solve privacy on the Ethereum network and their own uh, layer two. Uh, Anoma and Penumbra, Penumbra are two projects on uh, the, in the Cosmos ecosystem looking to meaningfully make a dent in the privacy universe. Um, and there are probably, there's, there's a whole host of others, uh, but those are the ones that I'm, I'm watching most closely and I think have the highest potential. Cool. Yeah, uh, maybe I'll ask you to share those links uh, in the DM so I can drop them in the show notes when I release the episode. What I wanted to close with is a little speculation. Where where do you all think we go from here, both in the sense of next steps in the tornado cash debate, but also maybe as an industry, are we going to see a tornado cash fork? Yeah, just a, a chance to kind of see with the information that that has come out where where from your experience, where you think things might pop up next? Yeah, I, I would assume there already are forks out there. I would, would have thought people in the last few days would have just gone out there and said, well, fine, I'm going to deploy this um, myself. I'm That's, sure. That is true, but the problem is it fragments the anonymity set. So like, you can use the tech, it's just your anonymity set is dramatically reduced because of the, the act of forking it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You're right. Yeah, part part of the, its success was how many people were using it and right. for how long. Um, that that is a shame. Um, so yeah, I mean, new versions could exist and build up a, a certain amount of anonymity, but um, you know they'll kind of get whack a mole plugged over and over. I imagine. I, I think that the debate is is basically just getting started, as we kind of alluded to over the over the discussion. It's it's kind of good that it's brought it out into the forefront because it's affecting more people now and even, um, I guess, quote, innocent people who, you know, are quite visible on Twitter and so on. Um, 
And yeah, it's just it's introducing people to the importance of, of these technologies. So yeah, I'm interested to see how it goes. Well, putting on my prediction hat, I've seen this movie before. Uh, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. It does rhyme. Um, so I think it's likely that right now there's this massive overreaction going on amongst crypto devs. Uh, the joke is Web3, instead of being read-write-own, it's read-write-jail. Everyone's freaking out, hiding their affiliations with privacy projects. I think that's over-rotating. I think we'll likely see that the tornado dev that they arrested was up to no good to some extent beyond just publishing the code. They were probably dipping their cup in a stream of dirty money. Uh, so I think that will cause a lot of people to point fingers at crypto and say, see, it's all Ponzi's and Silk Road and terrible stuff. So we'll have to get through that. Uh, I'm hoping that this incident will help us drop some of the tribalism and recognize that we're working towards some shared goals and that the, the uh, antagonism towards other projects is really misguided. But broadly speaking, I think this is a necessary step on the journey towards Web3 really taking hold. Um, I, as this news broke, I was disappointed, but not surprised. This was bound to happen once something got sufficient amounts of traction on a network that had product market fit like Ethereum. And so I'm not at all surprised. What I do hope it causes us to do uh, is to rethink how we're approaching privacy. So if you look at the long-term roadmap for Ethereum, Vitalik does a really good job of laying out this you know, very long-term view of where Ethereum is going to go. Privacy is always on that list. It's always near the bottom, but he knows, Vitalik knows that Ethereum having no privacy at layer one is a problem. And it's one that I think that we're going to solve. I think Tornado is a Band-Aid. It's not the right way to solve this problem. But I do think that however we solve this problem, we can't have just complete and total anonymity. I think we need to have confidentiality, but that's different than anonymity. Now that that's probably a topic for a whole nother conversation is the shades yeah. of gray that 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 assertion uh, makes us consider. But long-term, I'm going to go back to what I said at the beginning, which is that in order for Web3 to transform finance, it cannot introduce a massive regression around confidentiality. And that's what we're headed for. That's what this tornado uh, debacle hints. And that's not the way that this is going to work long-term. And we just look at Web2 and the way that strong encryption uh, is everywhere in Web2. Web3 will be the same way. But the regulators, the policymakers, law enforcement, they need to be able to do their job. Our role as technologists and as policymakers and as practitioners in this ecosystem is to find the balance and to find the compromise that allows them to catch bad people doing bad things, but doesn't handicap the entire system in the process. I want to thank Aaron and David for coming on Staking Defense. Over the next few months, we're planning to bring you all many more conversations like this. If you enjoyed the episode, please follow us on Twitter at Staking Defense and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Till next time, keep fighting the good fight.